1: I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Angela Chang-Noel is a portfolio manager at Social Capital. As many of our listeners will know, Social Capital is the brainchild of Chamath Pali Apatia, billionaire and Twitter influencer with over 1.4 million followers. Earlier this year, Angela made it into an exclusive group, Chamath and Social Capital's emerging managers class of 2021 an industry-first initiative that has sought investors of all backgrounds who believe they can develop differentiated strategies to generate outsized returns. Social Capital have funded their portfolio managers with an initial capital base with the aim of scaling that over time. Angela has worked for some of the biggest and most prestigious asset managers in the world, including JP Morgan and Macquarie, and her unique take on US equity investment was extremely compelling. We discussed what differentiates her approach from the rest of the market what makes an exceptional portfolio manager, and Angela takes us inside one of the most talked about companies in the industry. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Angela. It's great to have a chance to speak to you. How are things in California?
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Hayden. Um, California, I'm glad to be back here. I was actually spending a lot of time with family during um, this past year pandemic out on the East Coast. Um, So glad to be back here in Marin.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. but well, we've we've been doing a lot of uh, spending time with family over the Easter break. We've had a long weekend and some bank holidays uh, over in the UK. So, uh, but yeah, back back uh, back in London uh, for me now, uh, and the weather is 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 horrible. So, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> at least uh, at least US equity markets are are interesting and exciting uh, at the moment. Um, and actually, I want to start the interview by talking about your position as portfolio manager at Social Capital. So we'll get on to some US equity market stuff a bit later on, and we'll also discuss your background in a bit greater detail to give our listeners some context around who you are and what you do. So first of all, when Chamath Paliapatea, social media influencer with over, I think 1.4 million Twitter followers, announced Social Capital's emerging managers class of 2021, He extolled the different virtues and strategies of each of the company's new portfolio managers. So be that growth, tech, value, or even a focus on climate. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, you're one of those portfolio managers. So if you had to pinpoint your focus, your investment edge, what would it be?
0: Hmm. Um, Well, my focus is I run a fundamental long, short public equities book, and I focus on the technology and consumer sectors. So I don't know about my edge, but I stick to a bottom-up research-intensive process go very deep on companies and figure out why certain investment opportunities exist and then analyze the clear catalyst path to realizing returns.
1: Yeah, great. And we'll get into that process in uh, greater detail shortly. Um, So, okay, let's give uh, our listeners the context and let's cover your background and how you made it to where you are today. Uh, I believe you started your investment career with JP Morgan in 2012 as an investment banking analyst. So uh, JP Morgan Everyone around the world will have heard of them, 3 trillion AUM, I think, last I checked. Um, So, working for a market juggernaut such as this must come with pros and cons. What stands out to you most about that experience?
0: Well, you're completely right. I think anyone would agree, JP Morgan stands out as a historical institution in the global markets, the global economy. Um, And I talk about this a lot with college kids coming you know, looking for internships or straight out of college. But there are definitely uh, pros and cons to being at a large corporation like that, you know, where you have tens of thousands, I think maybe close to 20,000 employees in in the New York office alone, where I was located. Um, I think one of the things, like what I just said, you know, as a young person coming straight out of college, a first-year analyst, uh, you can reach out to basically anyone at the corporation And anyone will take you out for a free coffee, um, you know, and you can get advice from literally anyone at the firm. I think the network is gigantic, both in the New York office and outside. And you kind of have that network and connection for the rest of your career. I honestly think that's a good, um, a big pro. Another thing is just the analyst class itself is pretty large um, and spending so much time in the office, especially as an investment banking analyst, um, you definitely develop Um, very meaningful friendships that for me have lasted, um, you know, till now that I'm very grateful for. I think in general, to answer your question, what stands out the most? um, I think the obvious thing for me would be Jamie Dimon, who I believe is one of the most quintessential CEOs of all time. Um, And what I learned from, you know, his presence at the firm, I think is just top-down leadership really means everything. Um, I guess to go into that, Jamie Dimon actually himself talks a lot about leadership, and some of the things he talks about is um, what makes a good leader. It's not necessarily the smartest person or the hardest working person in the room. And he doesn't talk about who is the best executionist or the the killer deal maker that's going to get it done or the most charismatic. And it's kind of funny because I think that he actually is all of those things, but um, he really talks about humility, openness, uh, fairness. you know, in terms of the characteristics that make a great leader. And you can see that in him. And, you know, as a first-year analyst, they care a lot about the program. And um, we had a lot of opportunities. I was an intern there as well when I was 20-something and coming out of college to be in, you know, small group meetings with Jamie Dimon where, um, you know, when he talks, he just inspires. And one of the things he always said is when he looks at management and great CEOs, you think about, you know, who do you want to work for? Or who would you want your kids to work for? And I know that's really, um, that was a takeaway that I think about that a lot now when I'm evaluating management teams. And I I really don't care if um, the CEO is the most charismatic person. And of course, there are a lot of those out there. But I really look for I care about the person running a ship that is able to inspire the team to form at their best, whatever their individual strengths um, might be. And that combined will be able to um, help the company realize its full potential and execute its story. So Jamie Diamond, I mean, coming out of college and having that exposure, I think that really stood out to me and still sticks with me today when I'm looking at other CEOs and evaluating management teams.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, a perfect grounding then in investments and asset management more broadly. Uh, you leave after, I believe, a couple of years, so I think in 2014, you moved to Vest Partners in the private equity markets. Uh, and I was interested, that move from public to private, I wondered whether, in your opinion, are there any sort of key lessons you're able to take from that experience uh, in the Private markets that you can now apply in your research of US public equities?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, a key insight that that's helped me today in my current overall process is just thinking about the very clear intersection of private um, and public markets and just the importance of understanding that. So whether I'm researching, you know, a single stock or looking at a certain theme or going into a certain subsector, you know, in order to be as thorough as you can possibly be, you have to get the entire competitive landscape. And that absolutely includes both private and public companies. Um, You know, I think it's especially interesting when I'm talking to uh, large cap public companies, and it's very obvious that internally at those big corporates, they are also um, very much in tune and sometimes concerned about private companies that are staying private longer and scaling and what impact that has on some of their, um, some of these large companies, businesses or um, sub segments, um, or even if they could be potential acquisition targets. So you see the corporates, you know, talking about the private landscape all the time as it relates to their business. And I think if they're thinking about it, investors should definitely absolutely have to be thinking about it. And you can see the trend now more recently, um, a lot of these old hedge funds, traditional hedge funds are now carving out capital to invest in, um, you know, even early stage VC all the way to late stage. And obviously, that's because they want to take part in some of those returns. But it really just goes to show the significance um, of the intersection.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've got a lot of retail investors that will be listening in and just your your insight there, which is which I think is a really interesting one that you, as to be, I guess, a successful investor in public markets, you need to at least be across what's going on in the private markets uh, and even early stage companies as well. Is there a resource that you use or a particular publisher that you could point to that helps you stay across the private market activity? How are you able to stay across both private and public markets all the time?
0: Yeah. So a few things, I guess, first, in terms of the reading, I read a ton. And there are a lot of great, um, you know, you can subscribe to a ton of these, you know, emails, sub stacks, uh, newsletters, um, a couple that I read, uh, you know, Benedict Evans, um, Byrne Hobart, I'm on Stratechery, uh, Scuttle Blurb, um, just a ton of any blog that you personally find interesting mm-hmm. and get something for, you know, it doesn't have to be a big name, it can actually be someone, um, you know, new, but you know, an expert in the industry that has interesting ideas, whatever you find and like, like obviously the email inbox management can be difficult, but for me, I, I just find mm-hmm. what I what I enjoy reading. And then over time you gather this knowledge bank where you can, you know, have that pattern recognition and just have that um, bank of, you know, companies and private companies that you've read about in the past, I guess in terms of like the network, it's not necessarily like, um, you know, it doesn't matter really who you know, like a lot of these companies in their earnings calls or conferences, they will specifically call out these private companies that are in their um, in their subsectors or in their competitive landscape. I guess for me as an investor, um, I do when I have these, you know, one-on-one calls, I, I ask those questions a lot as well, though, in the calls. And a lot of the same ones just happen to come up. Um, and then in my investment process, when I'm looking at Know small to mid cap companies. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about you know, could this company be a good acquisition target for another large strategic you know company that you know I've looked at in the past or know about? So it all kind of um, you're able to take the knowledge bank and then triangulate that and then really think about that and add that to your investment process. But yeah, to anyone who's interested in learning more, there are just a ton of blogs out there and reading. And then, of course, just um, you can look at, you know, Crunchbase, TechCrunch, um, PitchBook. There's just, you know, a vast amount of reading that you could possibly do. But to be honest, when you're looking at um, some of these large companies, it's really the few names that will in the private landscape that stick out or the ones that um, are really scaling that these large corporates or, or the public market companies are actually concerned about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Some really solid advice there. I mean, that makes complete sense. It's just interesting hearing kind of the resources that you use. Um, obviously, a few of those I'm aware of, and I'm sure our listeners will be aware of, of some of them as well. But I think there's a few names, certainly for myself, that I wasn't uh, familiar with. And if we can sort of continue through your your investment career thus far, then so you'd left uh, J.P. Morgan in 2014. You joined Harbour Vest Partners, as I said, and then in 2016 you join another massive uh, asset manager in Macquarie. But firstly, were you at Macquarie Capital? So were you still involved in private markets at this point? Or had you returned to public equity markets?
0: Yeah, so I guess taking a a step back as part of the, I guess, part of my background, I actually took a little hiatus after my sort of um, very traditional, you know, two plus two investment banking, private equity type um programs, analyst associate programs. And I took some time off to well, one, I was traveling at that yes. time in Europe and spending a lot of time with family. Um, I got married that summer and just took some time off after those four years and really thinking about what I wanted to do next. Um, and just being self-aware about that and and making sure that the next decision was um You know, it was definitely an important one at that stage in my career. I just wanted the time to really uh, think about it. But throughout that time, I was actually still managing my you know PA very actively. Um, More so that fall after the travels, I was really treating it actually as a full time job and really loved it. You know, I'd get up, you know, look at the pre markets, look at the futures, listen to earnings calls pre and post markets, like really actively managing this portfolio. And I found myself waking up every day you know, very motivated and excited to do that day to day. Mm. And, you know, that's when I realized, like, I really, at this point in my career, I should, um, you know, pursue what I always knew what I was passionate about, which is investing in public equities. And the reason I kind of always knew that was, Um, I was exposed to it very early. You know, my dad was a day trader. So I was exposed and heard him talking about that from a very early age. And then, you know, throughout high school and more so in college, I was equities trading, options trading, um, you know, even much earlier than the Wall Street bets, Robin Hood craze. Now, like I was doing that, you know, decade ago, um, on my own when a lot of the other kids uh, weren't around me. It's just what I was passionate about. It was my hobby. And um, I realized at that point in my career that, you know, that is what I should pursue. I shouldn't, you know, hold that off any longer and just try to keep wandering and going through these steps and motions. So I joined Macquarie in the New York office um, in equity research. Mm -hmm. So my seat there was covering uh, first consumer and then technology. But I did that with the long-term goal of eventually um, landing a buy side seat um, we can talk about this later, but with the longer term goal of, you know, hopefully and potentially being a portfolio manager.
1: Yeah, great. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. You took some time out and that's really where your sort of love and passion for managing your own personal account sort of evolved and, and took hold. Uh, what is it just out of interest that you loved so much about sort of managing your own personal account versus obviously then going to and from uh, working for the bigger institutions? What did you prefer about managing your own account?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess the the obvious answer is um, just being the decision maker of your own investments and being able to test yourself. Um, That's one thing, I guess, just about being a portfolio manager. But what I love just about the day to day was um, looking at these companies, you know, looking at the markets, doing the analysis, you know, just really learning about other, you know, learning about great investors, doing a ton of reading. I think at that point, I was just, um, you know, really found out like, you know, even if I'm unemployed, this is what I'm doing. It's what I'm passionate about. Um, it's what I love doing.
1: Yeah, great. I know. It's, I mean, that that's really fascinating. I imagine you learned some sort of key lessons as part of that experience that have gone on to influence your current role as a portfolio manager at Social Capital, Okay, so um, we're close to the point that you decide to join Social Capital, which is early 2021. Uh, but before that, you work for two years at a company called Intermede Investment Partners. So that's a company that prides itself on investing exclusively in high-quality, high-return companies over the longer term. They cite fundamental analysis as a core competency, uh, referencing an ability to identify a sustainable competitive advantage in the companies that they're invested in. So, in regards to that sustainable competitive advantage, when you were working at Intermead, mm-hmm. what sort of thing or characteristic were you looking for there?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it really, well, first of all, Intermead, um, they run a concentrated portfolio, but they have analysts that are experts across sectors. Mm. Um, so, you know, outside of just technology and consumer, also industrials, financials and healthcare. But in terms of the competitive advantages, more broadly speaking, um, each company is obviously, you know, company specific, but they're very focused on mode types. So yeah. that can be network effects, scale advantages, you know, high barriers to entry, high switching costs. You know, most of the things that you would think about in terms of mode types, and then um, potential threats, the uh, threats to those modes. Um, but again, they're, you know, um, industry. um you know, experts on, you know, the sectors that they're following each. So again, it's very company specific as it relates to these mode types. Um, yeah. And then they're looking for the best companies to back over time and through cycles because they're a, a concentrated portfolio um, long only.
1: Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And I mean, you referenced a few sort of moat types there. Do they have to have some sort of economic moat for interme to be at least interested in that? Equity opportunity before they then go on to do more research into whether that's actually a a viable uh, opportunity to add to the portfolio is the moat, the the first criteria that equity opportunity needs to meet?
0: Um, Well, I would say that most of the analysts have a very large coverage universe. They're very patient, they're very valuation disciplined. They're covering some of, you know, really looking at these companies. Um, over time, sometimes for years, even before their first initial entry point. Um, yes. But in terms of, you know, moats, I think that, you know, when you pick up coverage on a company, you know, they're doing it, you know, you know very similarly to, and a lot of analysts do this, not just at Intermeet, but similarly to when you're initiating on a company, um, an equity research, where it's really bottoms up, Um, you know, learning some of these companies from scratch, um, everything you can about them. Um, And then over time, you understand what some of these moat types are for each of the companies. I guess one of the tools that Injimed specifically uses is um, they use this as, you know, know, a tool for screening, Um, you know, not really an output, um, but they're looking for, you know, some of the superior financial characteristics um, to narrow down their investable universe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what are some of those superior financial characteristics?
0: Um, So, you know, I think they talk about this a lot, but, you know, in order to bring down the universe to sort of top decile growth, so namely in growth, they're looking at um, 5% revenues, 10% EPS, um, and 15% ROE, uh, and ROE that's rising over time. Um, And for them, this is not, you know, it's not a mechanical screen. It's more just a tool. to look at the top decile growth and sort of the best-in-class companies as it relates to superior financial characteristics that they can find potential opportunities in.
1: Yeah, great. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's nice to get sort of an insight into their uh, investment process because I imagine it would have shaped some of your thinking. Uh, Now, in your role as portfolio manager at Social Capital, uh, as I said earlier, you joined um, Chamath & Co., at Social Capital in early 2021, what was your key sort of motivation for making that move?
0: <laughs> the key motivation was really YOLO, because like <laughs> I mentioned before, the goal or the dream for many, I think, in this job is to ultimately be a portfolio manager, to be the key um, you know, sole decision maker of the investments of your book, and really to test yourself to see if you can do it um and generate those returns and not just talk about it you know walk the walk so for me the motivation was you know that was always sort of my long term goal and um in the end what i love about the job again is that you get a report card at the end you know you get your returns there's no hiding that um and it's really an opportunity to test yourself like i really don't know any i'm sure there are um opportunities such as this one where um you know, someone like Chamath is giving, you know, his personal capital to uh, emerging managers and uh, giving them the chance to, you know, run their own book and have an audited track record, and over time, you know, maybe do something with that.
1: Yeah, great. I mean, you mentioned the application process there. We don't need to go into it into in, in detail, but it just struck me as interesting that obviously, as you say, he he's funding people with his own sort of personal capital via via social capital, the company. Uh, And obviously, he's got to be relatively convinced and confident in the people that he is funding that they're going to generate some returns. So how does he get to that point that he is convinced and he is confident in in the people that he's hiring? What sort of steps did you have to to go through to become a portfolio manager at Social Capital? (laughs)
0: Um, So, yeah, I guess about a little about the application process, how I approached it is I actually found out... um, about the opportunity a little bit later in the game um, in December through a friend uh, Jill Carlson and um, I've always talked to her about you know that dream of one day being a portfolio manager. and um, you know I, I knew I was late in the game I already knew that there were thousands of applications in. So the way I approached it was really about just introducing myself, you know, being very frank, um, you know being very open and honest about, my background, everything from the beginning, how I got interested, why I'm interested, what excites me, like what exactly is it that I get excited to wake up every day and do this job? I I really approached it from a very personal level, I think, in terms of the application process. You know, I didn't go into the nitty gritty on any sort of stock pitch or or anything like that. Um, You know, he's Social Capital and Schmott, they're into one pagers. Um, I think I submitted that. um, on a, on a stock that I was interested in, but really much more about if I were to join, what would I be doing in the first couple of months? You know, how would I be preparing? Um, what would I be interested at looking in? And then a little bit about how I approach, like what exactly is my investment you know, strategy and in the process and how I think about things. And then some examples of, you know, companies that I've looked at in the past, um, so it was really much more a personal approach, I think, in terms of my own application process. And then after the written um, application, um, I spoke with a couple partners at the firm who are helping to basically lead uh, this initiative and oversee the program. Uh, Connor Nuneski and Justin Saslaw, and they're incredibly smart, incredibly helpful um, I spoke with them, and again, it was much more about uh, the personal, and then just talking generally about the market, just talking generally about some companies, um, and then the last stage was the one-on-one video um, with Chama, which was really quite an experience. I would say I, you know, had no idea what to expect going into that. You know, he was just extremely open, and he wanted to know. Everything just about me from literally the day I was born, he said. And he wanted to know about my family and my friends and the company that I keep, and just much more getting to know you and your values. I think we spent like 20 minutes talking about literally my lacrosse days, um, you know, and how important that was to me in my childhood and what I learned from that and, you know, the lessons I took from that. Uh, so it was really quite interesting. Um, so that was the last step, talking to him one on one, and so that was a process, and that was in January. And then um, I started at Social Capital in February, and we all launched on March first.
1: Right. Okay. So, um, and and uh, you'll be you'll be funded. Your portfolio will be funded by Social Capital, but to what extent will they sort of top you up based on performance? How how does that work?
0: Yes, I think over time. I think over time, the goal is to. Um, you know have strategies that can scale over time. And that's honestly how I approach you know my investments. When I look at the opportunity, I don't really it's really about the sizing versus and the allocation on the mm-hmm. entire portfolio. I don't really care about the absolute dollar amount because whether it's two hundred thousand dollars or two hundred million dollars, it really it really is just about um, you know sizing and risk management on however much the the total you know exposure is. Yeah, but I think the the goal is to be able to scale the strategy
1: over time. So, I mean, just, just based on performance, then sort of, uh, as you say, you kicked off in, in March this year. Over the next 12 months, I guess Social Capital will assess the performance of the portfolio. And then the ability to scale it, I suppose, will will be based on historical performance of, of the portfolio over that 12 months, over the last six months, whatever timeframe they pick like is is that the way they're looking to progress this for years to come? Is it is it a longer term sort of initiative that, that that they that they plan to run?
0: Yeah, I would definitely say it's um, a longer term initiative. I mean, the group spoke with Chamath recently, and as you know, he's very forward thinking and sort of visionary, mm-hmm. and you know has um, big goals. I think he's really it's, it's great to see. I think very excited about the emerging managers program. Um, and you know, he doesn't have to do this. This is his decision to do mm-hmm. it. Right. So that part is also uh, very exciting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. No, it was really interesting to get an insight into that process. Cause obviously a lot of us heard the announcement on Twitter and then, and then not, not too much else, uh, apart from that, uh, we've heard Shamath in various interviews, but to get that insight into the application process and obviously a one-on-one conversation was, was really interesting. So that, that is great. And actually, I just as a quick sort of follow-up question to that, you're you're exposed to a lot of, as you said, diverse or sort of backgrounds and very different strategies to the one that you're operating. To what extent do you think you'll be able to learn from the other managers and take little bits and insights from them as you as you progress? Oh
0: my gosh, it's like taking little bits and pieces from anything that I can Grab onto or hear, or, you know, whenever I talk to any of these managers, because there really is so much to learn. It's not just that their strategies range from, you know, more if it's their backgrounds in quant or macro or, um, you know, value or retail or, you know, whatever it is. It really is just um, their individual investment styles and processes. Um, It's just really interesting to learn about. Um, and also just in general, there's just, you know, we talk every day just about general markets and news flow. And, you know, um, there's a lot of, um, you know, I guess in general, a little bit more about the program, like we have, you know, portfolio review meetings, but also, um, you know, team idea meetings and there's, you know, a big collaborative, um, element, but also very educational and, um, you know, you know, not just Chamath, but, you know, on the calendar, I think to speak to some of the great investors um, and learn from them the you know the resources are really pretty incredible both inside and outside the firm and what we're set up with um, you know even just on day one
1: we hope you're enjoying the episode for interviews like this every thursday subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and while you're there make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section now back to the show Um, Okay, well, as I said, that was a really sort of interesting insight uh, into social capital and one that uh, pretty much everyone listening in won't have usually got. So uh, really fascinating stuff. But we move then on to investment philosophy and strategy. um, We've kind of tread around the subject, um, but let's dig into detail about your specific philosophy and strategy. First of all, if you could sum it up for us, if you could characterize your investment philosophy, what would it be?
0: I mean, I guess one thing I would talk about is that there's, you know, a very clear difference to me between good companies and good investments. And as a portfolio manager on the investment side, um, I need to understand why the opportunity, investment opportunity currently exists, you know, today, and then what needs to happen, the clear catalyst path for me to realize my investment thesis um, and the returns and um, I've learned a lot about or thought a lot about, you know, what makes a good portfolio manager. And a lot of it is being open-minded with having a point of view. And before, you know, even before conviction or making that go no-go call, a lot of it is just about losing the pride and being able to change your mind, be flexible. I think the best investors are just incredibly humble. It's not about, you know, ownership of ideas or who thought of the idea generation. It's, it's about, evaluating those best ideas, um, whether it's your own or not, and then uh, constructing your portfolio to realize the returns. You know, in terms of more about the philosophy, I don't really have, I'm looking at technology and consumer, long, short, fundamentals. I don't really have, you know, set quantitative parameters, um, as some managers do, it really depends for me on where the company is in their life cycle. And what's the clear path and timeline to realizing, you know, XYZ financial characteristics Um, and then evaluating the crispness and the management team's execution story to execute on the company's potential. But also any of those financial characteristics that I talked about, um, you know, and that they mention or guide to or really anything that the management team has said out loud or written about. Um, you know I want to see basically evaluate the execution that that's going to happen. I'm not really too focused on any um you know quantitative to you know screens and parameters around what's investable for me.
1: yeah, absolutely uh, and and that point about being flexible, particularly in modern equity markets, I imagine is is completely crucial. Um, and uh, I mean a lot of uh, portfolio managers talk about alpha, they talk about sort of a differentiation with the majority of equity investors out there. Is there a single point or a key factor you think separates you from the majority of equity investors?
0: Yeah. So, honestly, like to be completely frank, like all these managers in their fundraising meetings and so on, and when they talk about their edge and advantage and alpha generation, it's great. But at the same time, like what I'm doing and my approach, is honestly very similar to what a lot of the other equity investors are doing. I think what it comes down to, though, and I can talk a little bit more in detail about you know how I look at companies, but I think it really comes down to um, execution on whatever your strategy is, and then being able to take profit and take loss, um, you know, and generate the returns. I think in terms of the actual. Um, Know how we look at companies, or what what the equity investors' approach is. Um, it depends on what your your strategy is, of course, and what group of companies you're looking at. Um, but a lot of us are doing the same thing day to day. I mean, for me, my due diligence consists of I do the desk work. Anything that's publicly cited or said aloud from inside and outside the company, I want to know. You know, I understand the numbers. I have my view, my forecast. I understand consensus view, and then I do the broader research. To understand, you know, what else is there? Um, where am I different? What's consensus? What's my view? What's buy side? What's sell side talking about? But honestly, all those things that I mentioned, <laughs> I think a lot of other investors are doing the same thing. I mean, I guess one thing that I do um, that might not be as common is, you know, we have access to you know expert networks and um, you know in, you know interviews and things like that. But for me, I, I like to be creative in terms of. Um, you know, when I'm looking at, um, companies and learning about them, especially new ones that I'm picking up in my coverage, you know, I love talking to not just the C-suite, you know, even if I don't know if you can even get personal access to a lot of them, but not just C-suite, not just a CEO, CFO and, and the investor relations team. And many of them can be very strong, the IR teams and helping you to understand the story. But I love talking to the people who are actually In these companies that are passionate about you know the product or the service that the company is offering, so this can be this can be um, you know product people, marketing, you know strategy, engineers, you know people in the company, and I want to know like what they're passionate about. And a lot of them will be so willing and um, you know wanting to talk about you know what they do and give you their honest opinion. Like, do they even like working there? Are they looking for a new job? You know, what about the company are they passionate about and um, what about the product? So I guess that's one thing about my approach that can be slightly different. Um, You know, I'm not afraid to cold call ever since I was a little kid. I'm not afraid to pick up the phone and just, you know, either reach out, you know, personally or ask for a warm introduction. That's just something about, I guess, personally, um, one of my strengths. I'm just not scared to do that. So that's definitely helped me. um, you know, in terms of talking to you know people who work at these companies, and they have a lot to say about their experience and what they think. Um, and then from all that information, the desk work, the you know the broader research, um, you know the fundamentals, looking at the modeling, you know, I get to opportunities where it comes down to ultimately misvaluation of the stock. Like, what's what's the market missing? What's misunderstood for the stock to be mispriced? And ultimately, what needs to happen? And then Again, I'm a big fan of, um, antithesis and devil's advocate. Like for me, I feel like I'm still, you know, very new and, um, you know, I'm in that very much learning stage. Like I'm going to be humble. Um, I don't care if it's my brilliant idea to talk about. I want to make sure that when I'm getting in at the entry points that I want to get in, I also, um. You know, see the investment play out, not stray from the thesis, and either take profit or take loss, depending on how the thesis shakes out. Um, so, yeah, there's that was a lot <laughs> to think about. But um, I guess your <laughs> original question—I mm-hmm. just feel like when people talk about edge and alpha, and um, you know, how are they different? There's thousands of equity investors out there that are looking at the same companies, like. Everyone has their unique style, but I think largely if you were to write it down, um, a lot of the research process is going to be the same. What's going to differentiate is, um, I guess, just, you know, portfolio construction and risk management and then ultimately um, like losing the pride, basically, um, and then seeing how your thesis, you know, plays out.
1: Yeah, no, completely. <laughs> I mean, that 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 makes a lot of sense. And actually, I think that was a really interesting pull-out about not being scared to pick up the phone and talking to the kind of people within the company and not necessarily just the C-suite, but the people on the ground sort of making it happen on a day-to-day basis. I think you're, you're right to suggest that maybe the majority of equity investors aren't doing that. So um, that was a kind of nice sort of USP as it were. Um, but I think, yeah, broadly speaking, you're completely right that uh, probably the majority of equity investors are doing similar things. Um, But you, I mean, you mentioned sort of not having um, set quantitative metrics uh, for when you're valuing uh, a a company. I wonder whether there are any sort of fundamental characteristics that you look for in companies that aren't necessarily the same every time, but maybe there's some consistent ones that you tend to pick out.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, it's really... um... I'm looking at stocks, one stock at a time, and it really depends on where the company is in its life cycle. You know, for me, I don't care if it's um, a large cap software company with, you know, great growth that's sustainable for, you know, many, you know, many different, um, you know, revenue growth drivers with best in class EBITDA margins and the entire group with, Um, growing EPS and leveraging over time. And basically, if you think about all the superior financial characteristics, you know, best in class, um, this and that. For me, it's like, where is the company in its life cycle? Is it at a point where they should be executing on that and maybe even doing it better and faster? Or is it sustainable? Like for me, when I look at opportunities, it could be something actually in the model where they misexecuted or... um, you know, I, I evaluate a lot of times when company gives guidance, if I think it's conservative or not, really how I think, um, you know, on the quarter or the year, how, how it will actually pan out. And I think it's important, whether you're right or wrong, to have an opinion on those things in terms of the quantitative and the actual financial model, um, how it will shake out. Because a lot of times, at least in the short term, that is going to move the stock um, yeah, but again, like whether it's, like I said, super best in class, deep the margins, large cap software, or a evolving, um, you know, smaller uh, tech company that's not profitable, <laughs> or, you know, even like very negative uh, gap margins, but over time you see a path. Um, you know, all great companies in the end, they start somewhere, right? So it's really just about evaluating the management teams. Um, you know, what they're saying in terms of the financials and then, you know, how they're going to execute on the timeline if they even give a timeline. But whether it's super profitable or not profitable for me, like I know some managers only will invest in certain profitable companies. Like for me, it's it's really much more company specific and, you know, where they are in their life cycle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And um, I skipped over a question that I was keen to ask. Um, so maybe it fits in here. Over what, time horizon because you, you mentioned a lot of your strategy is, is company specific so i imagine time horizon and the the time period over which you expect to return is similarly sort of company specific but yeah. broadly speaking if we use really sort of broad strokes are you looking longer term or are you looking medium term or shorter term
0: um yeah i mean i guess uh currently i'm looking for you know a long long-term bias long-term oriented bias um But, you know, to be fully frank, I also have a trading sleeve in my book where, um, you know, I'm looking at hedging or shorter term play, um, you know, where opportunities come up, um, you know, in the coverage in the investable universe that I follow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great. And uh, just just before we move on to current markets, in terms of portfolio construction, are you conscious of having um, a diverse allocation? across sectors uh, we won't we, we don't need to go into specifics around which sectors you're specifically in but and we've talked around sort of technology uh technology for example so we've got an idea of where you're in uh, invested in the market but are you conscious of having a well diversified portfolio or are you not too worried about that? are you happy for it to be relatively targeted
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of relatively targeted for me, I'm not I don't have set, you know, measures in terms of portfolio construction or allocation that I'm going in. I think it's much more opportunistic and what opportunities come. Like, of course, there are companies that I love and I know very well that I want to add to my portfolio. But right now, the opportunity just doesn't exist or I don't think it's a correct entry point or the correct entry point yet. So for me, it really isn't um, a set I guess, in terms of the portfolio construction allocation, like I guess going in, to be honest, when I, in February, when I was um, looking at different themes and and thinking about the portfolio construction overall, um, you know, I had some ideas, but as we've seen, like the market is incredibly dynamic um, and it changes on you all the time. So really it's about being patient, knowing these companies incredibly well and finding, you know, really analyzing the risk reward profile, um, you know, and the probabilities of those shaking out and then getting in at the time that you're you're comfortable with. So I guess for me in terms of portfolio construction, in one word, right now it's definitely evolving. And I mean, yeah, fully frank, like we launched March one. We're about a month in. And I would say that I'm definitely have been slower to allocate and I'm not in a rush. I think um, that's another big thing. I think, you know, when I look at some of these, you know, great investors that I look up to, there will be times when they are. Just completely like, you're asking, like, what are you doing? There's like so much inactivity. But I think a lot of the what they're doing is they know when to be patient and then when to be extremely aggressive. And a lot of that comes down to risk management and just how they're thinking about the overall markets as it relates to their, you know, specific companies, um, you know, entry points.
1: Yeah. Okay. Completely. Well. On that note, then let's move on to current U.S. equity markets before we finish with our quick fire question round. So, a couple of questions mm-hmm. here. So, yeah. since two thousand eight, uh, growth as a, as a factor has enjoyed a period of outperformance over value. So, mm-hmm. however, since the end of September, obviously a lot of been, a lot of people have been talking that, about that pivot back into value, and we've started to see that trend reverse. Do you expect that trend to continue into twenty twenty one?
0: Yeah, so you're spot on because obviously this is the question, the most you know talked about question right now. I would say I literally hear it every day from someone at least, and um, you you'll you'll hear everything. You'll say, "Oh, value is having its moment," or "growth is back on." You know, a growth update, and to be like, I can legitimately, I have zero clue. You know, the Mm -hmm. you know over the past decade, yes, growth has outperformed value. I mean, long value has been double digits in the first quarter, whereas a lot of secular growth and uh, non-profitable tech or sort of the TMT 12-month winners were down single digits in the first quarter, at least. I can talk more about that, but um, I can say I legitimately have no clue. And to be honest, it doesn't really affect me as much because, again, I'm looking you know, at the opportunity uh, company-specific um, whether it's in growth or value, I think in, in terms of being a stock picker, you can find risk reward profiles in either. Um, you know, I'm not buying baskets of factors here. That's not my strategy. It's much more single stock specific. Um, but it has been interesting. And yeah, I know if anyone knows and they can tell me, like I don't know exactly how it's gonna shake out. But as you've seen in the first quarter, if you're looking at these factors and themes, it's really been. Reopening trades, value, long value, retail favorites, and some of these old tech that were up double digits. And um, rather than some of the more growthier, um, you know, whether it's GARP or um, high growth, um, some of the winners that were um, over 2020 that were actually down more like single digits in the first quarter.
1: Yeah. Okay, good. But, um... If if we just finish this section talking about uh, sort of current markets uh, and U.S. markets in particular, uh, equity valuations have, have been interesting, um, if, if I can use that word word over the past sort of year or so. Um, and it seems at least, and this is a trend that's been talked about a lot again, but an increase of retail uh, activity in U.S. equity markets might have contributed to uh, certainly some popular momentum stocks becoming Mm -hmm. overvalued. I mean, obviously, we've seen sort of hyperinflated valuations in stocks like GameStop, for example. But what's your take on that trend's impact on U.S. equity markets in general? Do you think it's made it harder to value U.S. stocks or not?
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I guess taking a step back, the retail activity that's picked up, I guess, really since you know, more so last year to now has been really quite interesting because I think what a lot of people don't understand is that retail activity has always actually been there for decades. Mm-hmm. It was just only X percent of the market. There's actually new retail activity from new retail investors that really only picked up starting last year that, you know, I, yeah. I don't have the exact data points, but maybe almost mm-hmm. doubled, um, you know, the retail proportion of trading Um, Which I find interesting. And honestly, like you have to give them credit. They have a lot of them will have many different strategies. Like, of course, there's news flow around the popular sort of meme stock retail favorites that are being, you know, driven up by this small group or this and that. But a lot of the retail investors, especially the ones that have already um, been there, I would say that they've had their strategies and their PAs for a long, long time, not just this past year, um, where it's just become much more in the news flow. Um, but I guess answering your question about you know, topic equity valuations, you know, does that make it harder? I mean I guess for me no because um, in terms of some of these retail favorites or some of these momentum stocks that maybe you're day trading or trading for a shorter time period, that's really much more about the individual's risk tolerance um, you know much more than you know anything else really I think for retail. Um, and that's their decision you know it's the open market they can invest in whatever they want to invest in um i guess for me when i'm looking at valuations you know more recently um not just in the retail names but something that i find interesting is i guess going back to technology you know if you look at from a software valuation context i read recently i think this was out from goldman but um in the last two decades from peak to trough the multiples have on average compressed close to you know 30 percent i think that's I think it was 25% or so more recently, but from the peak in February 2021 to um, more recently, it's actually relative or in line to what we've seen from peak to trough multiples over the last couple of decades. And I think the more debate now is just more about that. The valuations though, the absolute levels are actually, they remain much more elevated um, to history and how much potential shakeout there is to go. But you know, markets go through cycles like, uh, I think, you know, you know. more recently, another topic of conversation was how closely um, the 10-year yield was being so closely inversely correlated with some of these risk on assets or more specifically uh, QQQ. But that's not, you know, that completely true and there are numbers around that and it's extremely high what that inverse correlation is now compared to, you know, the averages over time. But the markets are really dynamic, and um, I think it's really just about you know, sticking to your strategy, sticking to your thesis. For me right now, I hope that if it's a stock picker's market, um, that that will play out to my benefit. Again, about the toppy equity valuations, again, when I'm looking at valuations, it has to be justified Um you know and I think a lot of you know other investors on your podcast have talked about this but if you're comfortable and you have the risk tolerance to potentially invest in you know small cap or super high growth names with you know the top of the top equity valuations just what's your how do you justify that how will you know when you're wrong you know what needs to happen it's just each investor's individual strategy but yeah the retail activity definitely interesting um, and we'll see Like after the stimulus, you know, we actually thought that a few or I actually thought that, you know, a few weeks after or, you know, close to a couple months after we would actually see that retail activity pick up. But it is interesting because tie that with, you know, post-pandemic life, um, hopefully coming soon, um, you know, that spending and maybe that stimulus um, uptick could potentially be, you know, um, spent elsewhere and not in the markets. So a lot of dynamics going on as you would expect.
1: Yeah, no, completely. I I think you're you're right to highlight that uh pandemic induced sort of isolation has has probably accelerated the amount of retail traders getting involved in US equity markets. Um I mean I, I actually I, I I had a stat here that retail trading now accounts for almost as much volume as mutual funds and hedge funds combined in terms of market share of overall US equity trading volume. Um which, which, you know, obviously that's massively picked up over, well, since the start of 2020, as you rightly pointed out. Uh, but whether that continues post-pandemic, uh, and as you say, people have a lot more, more, a lot more things to spend their money on, we'll see. But it certainly makes for interesting US equity markets right now, that's for sure. Um, okay, well, I think that's a nice place to end the main body of the interview. Um, now want well, to move us on to our quick fire question round. So this is a generic list of questions we ask all of our guests uh, and it's simply a lighthearted way to end the episode uh, and feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word uh, if you like. The first question, what is the top mistake investors make in your opinion?
0: Um yeah, being too cocky and not staying humble.
1: <laughs> yeah. Definitely. It definitely makes sense. Question two, then, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read any specific publishers?
0: Yeah, it's really um, all of, you know, all the headlines and the ones you can think of Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Financial Times. Um, but really, um, you know, some of the subsects that I mentioned, some of the newsletters that you can subscribe to free or otherwise, uh, really just picking up on um you know, what do you like to read and who do you think, you know, has interesting things to say? Uh, And that can come from really anywhere.
1: Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, And it's been a fascinating career so far, but what is the most memorable moment from your career today?
0: Um, I would say I'm living it right now. (laughs) Like, as we said, we launched March 1. You know, I feel, you know, super privileged to have the role that I'm in right now and to have gotten this opportunity as um, a first-time portfolio manager so, you know, all, the past few months have been incredibly exciting for me.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, okay, question four, and it's our penultimate question. If you could give your younger self a top tip, what would it be? <laughs>
0: um, yeah, so maybe when I'm my 10 year old younger self is to uh, be kind and be happy and have fun. 20 <laughs> year old self is a. Uh, you know, look in the mirror, deny nothing and go for what you want. Um, Don't wander, don't sidestep, just go for it.
1: Yeah, great. Okay. Yeah. Really solid advice. Okay. Final question. And we've touched on this a little bit, but it would be nice to sort of consolidate it as a, as a nice sort of finishing point to the interview. What is an investor's best source of alpha in your opinion?
0: Best source of alpha. Um, I mean, it's about, I think, um, your timing on when to take the profit and when to take the loss and being very true to your strategy and thesis.
1: Yeah. Okay. Timing. Yeah. That's a really interesting one. And one that I'm not sure we've had before. So uh, a perfect place to end the episode then. It just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Angela. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank you so much, Hayden. Really appreciated. This was fun.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone just a quick note before we sign off if you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets this might be of interest opto updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets we've done the hard work for you highlighting relevant opportunities and trends and in addition we'll also keep you notified of any new products stock reports or webinars from the opto world if you're interested sign up using the link in the show notes and thanks also to co fruition for consulting on and producing the show Until next time.